We've been looking at Hebrews chapter 12, where we read this. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, in your striving against sin. Run the race. Run the race. You know, among us human beings, there's a lot of racing. I think it's uh, regatta week. And we're going to take this activity that was, I guess, invented to get from one place to another and we're going to have a race. We're going to have a lot of races. So we're going to find out who can get from one place to another faster. There's racing going on all over. We can take just about any activity and turn it into a race. Last week we had a, a big bicycle race here in Bonaire. There's racing going on all the time. Sometimes we refer to life as a rat race. It's a race. Well, you know, in 2008, after the Olympics, the, the Olympics is about 97% racing. Some of us, I think, are into uh, car racing. So again, we take this activity where we really we didn't make cars to race. We made cars to get around in. Because we figured a car would be better than a horse, I guess. Or better than our feet. So we invented cars. But as soon as we invent a way to get from here to there, we also begin to race. Well, in 2008, right after the Olympics, they did a study of Olympic athletes to figure out uh, what were the factors in uh, effective training for races or other athletic performances. Most of them are races. And they identified five themes. One uh, was like a, the support mechanisms an athlete had. So this would be like people in their life, uh, family, friends, staff, the doctors, massage therapists, nutritionists, they train. I mean, these are world-class athletes. They have a lot of people around them that are there to just support them in various ways. The, they talked about the uh, something they called the management of the competition environment. I don't even understand the description of that. Then they talked about the quality of the training environment. So this is like, what kind of equipment did they have? How nice was the gym they worked out in? What, was, what are their programs and the facilities and all of that? 
And then they talked about the high level of self-awareness. So an athlete trained better when the athlete was very tuned into how they were doing. How their body works. An athlete that's very aware of themselves is a big factor contributing to their success. But the most important factor, the most important factor they identified was the athlete's relationship to his or her coach. It was more important than all the other factors. Did they have a relationship of trust or confidence in their coach? And vice versa, by the way. How well did they work together with their coach in their training? How well did they communicate? How well did they understand each other? How consistent were they? How uh, did they have the, a similar expectation? Did they have the same goal? Did they truly share an interest in whatever endeavor in their success, in their athletic activity. So if the athlete trusts his coach to really be with him or her. You know, the most important word in the description of that factor is this word, trust. Trust. Do they really trust each other? And <clears throat> that is built on something like, do they really, truly share the same interest? Is the coach working for that athlete's performance? Reliably so. So that the athlete knows whatever the coach does is for my success. Do they have the same goal of personal development? And of course, in this case, it's not... It's not just their physical development, it's also their mental development, their emotional development, their emotional strength sometimes, depending on the sports. Sports require some endurance. Oh, and that means that training for any sport, I guess, will involve some suffering to be endured for the sake of strengthening And so the coach, while there's a, there's a relationship of trust and mutual objective, the coach will sometimes require the athlete to do things that are unpleasant. And so there's a, a sort of unconditional acceptance in this good relationship, but also a fairly consistent challenge. There's real suffering involved, but everyone involved also believes that that suffering will pay off in the end. So in running the race, an athlete must embrace the discipline. 
There's not a competitive athlete anywhere that hasn't embraced discipline. That hasn't decided that discipline pays. Now, as I've told you before, I'm not an athlete. I know about athletics because I can read. <laughs> not because I can run. Uh, and I'm, you know what, I'm really good at reading. I've done more study than most people. Reading, 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 and then writing. Reading a bunch of stuff and then figuring out how to write it in a, new, in a way that puts it together. Maybe somebody hasn't thought of before. I'm what you call an academic. I have a lot of education. My mother once told me, though she's the one that also told me that education was my primary job. Then one day she told me I, she thought maybe I had too much of it. She might be right. I have a lot of it. Since I graduated from high school, I've been to... Twelve years of more school past that. That is a lot of school. You know what? I really don't like school. Does that surprise you? I really don't like school. You know, uh, in graduate school especially, you get used, on the first day of the semester, you get all the syllabuses of your classes. That's incorrect, by the way. I should have said all the syllabi of your classes. Syllabi is more than one syllabus. Anyway, the thing that tells you what you're going to have to do for that class, and you get all of them at once. And when you're looking at the very first one, you think, well, this is impossible. And then you get another one and another one, and another one. Some of you have had this experience. In the seminary I went to, they have a name for this. It's called syllabus shock. Because honestly, you can't imagine how anyone could read all of that. And then somehow you do it. Well, here's what I know. If I wasn't enrolled in the school, I might read some of those books but I would never read all of them. And there's some of them I didn't even know were there to be read until I was told I had to. Well, this is a similar thing. It's a discipline. And what I would tell you is, while I hate school, I find it painful and even kind of depressing and after I've done it for a while, I really need a lot of rest. Even though that's true, I have learned so much through schooling that I wouldn't have, I would not trade that experience. I wouldn't go back and not do it. Because the discipline paid. The discipline paid, just like athletics. You know, whatever your endeavor is in this life, discipline pays. 
That is the point of the text we're coming to in Hebrews. And here we're not talking about, you know, whether you're a good student or a good athlete or a good plumber. We're talking about the Christian life, the life of faith. And the writer makes the same point, discipline pays. Because discipline pays, there is a coach. And I want you to think this morning about the value of difficulty in your life. Here's the text. I'm going to start with verse 4. We're going to focus on the text past verse 5. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Remember, this is in the context of this race running you're talking about. And you've not, and you've, well, it's really a question. Have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. You could translate that a little bit differently. It's kind of a commandment. It says, endure for discipline's sake. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children, not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Discipline pays. Now this text begins with this question, have you forgotten? So here's what I would like to say first. You would do well, we, each of us, all of us together would do well to notice the Lord's disciplining hand in our difficulties. To notice in our hardships or even our persecutions when someone is coming after you because you are his. But in any difficult situation, what you want to do is notice the disciplining hand of God. And this text quotes an Old Testament text from the Proverbs, don't take it lightly. Don't take it lightly, the discipline of the Lord. Don't take it light. In other words, don't dismiss it. Pay attention. 
when the coach is yelling at you, pay attention. When you have a difficult situation in your life, do you regard it as the Lord's hand of discipline? Don't, re don't regard it lightly. Pay attention to its value. Remember, He is more interested in your development as a Christian than you are. He is seeing to it. And sometimes that will lead you through some tough situations. The second thing he says here is, nor faint when you are corrected or reproved. Faint is the same uh, word we had in verse 3, lose heart. Here's a, here's a simple word for this, quit. Don't quit under correction. There's a temptation to quit. This is hard all of a sudden, so I give up. I quit. So when we notice the Lord's disciplining hand in our lives, we take it seriously. We might be asking ourselves the question, what is in this for me? I can see what's in it against me, what's in it for me. Because there's not nothing. So don't quit when you're being corrected. Now the next thing our text says about discipline is that discipline is proof of sonship. Discipline, when the Lord leads you through difficult times, the Lord is proving His acceptance of you. Now, we sometimes get this backwards. We sometimes think when I face hardship, I wonder if God's really for me. And this text reminds us, God is really for you. Period. And when you experience the discipline of God, that's proof. Proof that He is for you, not that He's against you. And here's the argument. First of all, discipline is an exercise of God's love. That's what he says. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. In other words, the Lord doesn't let you experience hardship and waste it. He is always working to, to develop something in you by it. It says here, he scourges everyone he accepts. That word scourge is literally like a spanking <laughs> with a child. Everyone he accepts as sons. Now, the part I want you to really notice is accepts as sons. If we are in Christ, we are adopted by God as His children. 
That is an irreversible condition. And the, Jesus said this, if anyone comes to me, I always accept anyone who comes to me. I never turn anyone away because they didn't come unless the Father drew them. Oh, they're God's. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying. He says, they're yours and you gave them to me. Oh, and what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. If he has accepted you, you can expect his discipline in your life. And then we come to that expression, endure for discipline's sake. Now, here's the thing about dis discipline. If you don't go through it, you don't get the benefit of it. If you don't stay, if you don't endure, then you don't receive whatever that thing was designed to provide to you. It's kind of simple. An athlete that experiences some pain and therefore stops training, stops receiving the benefit of training. You've got to go through it. So he says, endure. It's for discipline that you endure. It's for the training you will receive that you endure. The training that you are receiving. God deals with you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If, you don't, if you're not experiencing discipline, if you never experience any discipline, then maybe you're not really a son. Now, we're going to talk about what counts as discipline in a second, but uh, that, that used to really bother me because I thought I had a kind of an easy life. I could look around at other Christians in the world and see that they experienced a lot more challenge than I did, or so I thought. It's not about how hard or deep it is. It's about whether it is. And I don't believe there's anyone in here that hasn't experienced some, some challenge or another in their Christian life. All true sons are disciplined. Anyone who escapes discipline is not a son. So the question of whether something is discipline or not is not whether you have a hard life or an easy life relative to someone else. Because, you know, people who are not Christians have hard lives. Everyone has a hard life. There's no such thing as an easy life, really. Even the people with the easiest lives have hard lives. Because they find out the thing that they thought would make them at ease, turns out it doesn't. So the question is not whether you experience any suffering in this life. The question is whether it is the discipline of God or not. And if you're, this, if you're a child of God, then it is. And if you're not a child of God, then it isn't. 
So he goes on. Our earthly fathers disciplined us, and we respected them. We developed a respect for our earthly fathers. Here's the thing. Discipline should draw you toward God, not push you away from him. In other words, the discipline is sort of aimed at you crying out to God. You can see this in the book of Judges in the life of Israel where they'd have some kind of well, some foreign country would come because they were ignoring God, and some foreign country would come and conquer them. And then what? They'd cry out to God, and then God would respond and provide them with the judge who would throw out the foreign enemy and restore them to himself. Discipline is for the purpose of drawing us to God. It's for the purpose of us trusting him more and more deeply. Our earthly fathers, we came to respect. Look up to is the literal meaning of this word for the discipline they provided. Now, when I was a child and I was getting a spanking, I did get spankings when I was a child, I did not respect my father while he was spanking me. Did you? Maybe. It's possible. What I really did was try to get away. No, no, no. I would cry so far. Oh, I'd try to develop, you know, sympathy. Now, my father had plenty of sympathy for me, or my mother, whichever one. Plenty of sympathy for me. But they needed to discipline me. They didn't always do that correctly. But here's the thing. I respect them for it now. Because that did develop me as a person. As a, as, and my character as a person. Now what this text says here is, they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. Their discipline was not consistent. There were times when they should have disciplined me that they didn't notice. And there were times when they did discipline me when it really wasn't warranted. Well, so their discipline was a little inconsistent and not persistent. It wasn't always with perfect wisdom or judgment. And it was according to what they could see and according to what they thought needed to be developed or not. So their discipline was not consistent and their discipline was according to their preferences. God is wiser than my parents. So he says, look, you respected your parents for the discipline they gave you. Now, that is not true and can't be said for everyone because there are abusive parents in the world. So this might not be true of you, that particular statement, but it's a general rule. So he says, 
we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. He disciplines us for good, for our real benefit, so that we may share in his holiness. What is the real benefit? Us sharing in his holiness. And then he goes on. He says, uh, discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So our spiritual father, A, always disciplines us for our real benefit to share in his holiness. He is in the process of claiming us for himself, setting us apart for him. And all discipline hurts now, B, hurts now, but pays later. What does it pay? The reconciling fruit of righteousness. That's that word, peaceable. <clears throat> the peacemaking fruit of righteousness. As the Lord develops his righteousness in us, he also develops our relational capacity. Because all righteousness is the expression of some kind of love. And so as he develops his righteousness in us, we become loving. And that means peaceable. In other words, we enjoy more beneficial and more fruitful and more intimate relations with others. So it hurts now, but it pays. And then he says, we should subject ourselves to the, to the Lord and live. This is C, the third benefit of this discipline from our spiritual father. We live. And as we've said many times, real living is fellowship with God. They are the same thing. Real life is life in fellowship with the Father. Discipline improves it. Now, we haven't said anything yet about how. But we have said this fact. It does. Oh, and here's another thing we haven't talked about yet. What on earth is discipline? We haven't actually defined that term. How do we get all the way here and not define that term yet? Well, I was saving it for last. What is discipline? And how is the, the threat of persecution a discipline in the life of the church or the Christian? But what is the thing itself? Well, the word that is translated discipline in every case in this text is a word paideia. Okay, that didn't help you much, did it? It's a word for child training. So this text actually pictures us entirely as God's precious children who he is in the process of training. Child training. And... The process of training children is not a process entirely of punishment, of course. In fact, it's not even primarily a process of punishment. 
it includes some painful processes, but it's also a process of strengthening the good. In this text, in verse 11, we read this word, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained. That is a different word, trained. That is the word gymnasium. It's literally the word for athletic training. So the discipline of God is a training, a development of uh, strength and skill. And strength of skill in the spiritual sense means some kind of wisdom. So training is not just the rooting out of the bad things or the endurance of uh, the difficult things. Those aren't exactly the same either, are they? Punishment is not the same as practice, running. So it's all this full spectrum of these things. And of course, it includes the encouragement of uh, right and good. What is it? What is the good? Well, we've already read it. What part of it is the fruit of righteousness, the holiness. I think if you read, say, James chapter 2, you'll find that the good is faith. That what a person grows in as we grow in Christ is grace. In our understanding and appreciation and reliance upon God's goodness. Grace. I'm going to say that again. What we grow in is not good behavior. It is grace. Now, growing in grace has has the side effect of producing better behavior. So it's not without that. But the thing we grow in is our understanding of our appreciation for and our reliance upon God's grace, God's goodness to us in Christ, faith. Faith. So when you endure some hardship, the point is, where do you go with it? I should say, to whom do you go with it? You go to Him. And when He gives you difficulty to deal with, you pray. You rely on His goodness and His grace, and you trust Him to manage the situation. And He says to us, cast all your cares on Him, for He cares for you. That is what we grow in. That is what the discipline is for. God allows persecution for the way it purifies Faith, the way it focuses our attention on Christ, as we've read, fixing our eyes on Him. So I want to close with this question. What is happening in your life right now that is for your discipline unto holiness, 
for your discipline to reconciliation by righteousness, for your discipline toward deeper fellowship with God in Christ, for your discipline unto faith. What's going on right now that has that purpose? Are you familiar with Romans 8.28? It's about something we know. For we know all things work together for the benefit of those who are in Christ, those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So the actual answer to the question, what is happening in your life right now that is for the discipline unto faith, that is part of the disciplinary action of God, the answer is everything. Whatever is happening in your life right now, whatever little thing. You know, I can be really bothered and disturbed by some really little things. I can wake up in the middle of the night and not be able to go back to sleep for really trivial things. And the discipline of God says, cast your cares on him for he cares for you. So every one of those little things is an opportunity for that. If I notice... If I notice, what's happening in your life right now that's for your discipline is everything that's happening in your life right now. Some of it is in the form of uh, positive reinforcement, and some of it is in the form of uh, correction. So I suggest this, ask this question, can I see what he's working on through this? When you face some little difficulty or trouble, ask that question, can I see what he's working on through this? Sometimes you can. Sometimes you can go, oh yeah, well this actually makes perfect sense given the way I am. Given my sinful propensities, it makes sense that this would happen. And then I need to look to him. I don't, you see, he's the one that supplies whatever is needed for the correction. I look to him. I trust him. But sometimes the answer to that question is no, I can't see what he's working on through this. I have no idea why he would do this. It doesn't make any sense to me. So then you need a different question. Can I trust him with what I cannot see? In other words, does he actually have your benefit, your progress, your development at heart? Another way you could ask that question is, is he a good father or not? Is he good? 
Will you trust His goodness when you can't tell what it is exactly He's working on right now? Because it's not nothing, and it's not for nothing. He is developing you. He will develop you. He will not leave you as you are because He loves you, and you're not done yet. One day in the resurrection, He will finish the job, but not yet. Ask, can I see what He's working on in this situation? And if you can't, ask, can I trust Him with what I don't see? Take it seriously. <laughs> That's the main exhortation of this text. Don't take it lightly when the Lord is working on you. Take it seriously. Look. Check. Try to figure it out. And don't quit. You know, that's the exhortation of the first part of chapter 12. Run, run, run with endurance. Just don't stop. You know, there's people who have climbed all the big mountains, Mount Everest, for example. How do they do that? First of all, they train quite a bit. They train quite a bit. But you know, there's no Mount Everest you can climb to train for climbing Mount Everest. But they train quite a bit. They're in peak physical condition, and they have to have the right conditions before they even start. But how do they do it? They just don't stop. Sometimes the forces, the headwinds against you, the steep of the climb is discouraging. And when it is, you are getting stronger if you just don't quit. Trust Him. He knows what He's doing. Keep your focus fixing our eyes on Jesus. Keep running. Keep resting in Him, which is ironically how you keep running. You are accepted. That is a done and done. If you have come to Christ... For your standing before God, there's only one way that could have happened, and that is God has claimed you, and He will not let you go. You are accepted, and so you have the blessing of His discipline in your life. Take it seriously. Don't quit. Keep your focus. Keep running. Keep resting in Him. Father, we uh, praise You and thank You for this reality that the sacrifice of Christ made available to us, that we now walk in Your strength and by Your provision, even Your provision of discipline for our development. Lord, help us to always look to You, to fix our eyes on Christ, and keep running. Thank you, Lord.
In Jesus' name, amen.